0: Uh, Let me just tell you a little bit about myself, so uh, not that that's terribly interesting, but it might give you a bit of an insight um, as to who actually is at the front talking to you. So, I was born in Edinburgh, and you will have to forgive me for that. I um, was born in a little hospital called the Elsie Ingalls Hospital in Edinburgh, some of you might have heard of it. Uh, I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional family. Parents were divorced when I was... Um, six or seven I didn't really have a lot of connection with church Um, my dad and his new girlfriend decided it would be a good idea to get rid of me on a Sunday morning and they kicked me out the door and sent me to church and I went to Sunday school and I wreaked so much havoc at Sunday school that eventually the Sunday school teachers asked me not to bother coming back again Um, so that was my experience of, of church really Um, One of the things I think I did have, which was pretty unique to my circumstances and where I grew up, and, and that is I had two Christian grandparents. Uh, who loved me and prayed for me and so when my dad was uh, turning around Edinburgh and Glasgow and wherever else he tore about at the weekend I'd spend the weekend with my grandmother and my grandfather and I can still remember her getting down by the bedside to pray with me in the evening before I went to sleep and it made a huge 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 impact on me Uh, the influence of this little lady whose hand shook, um, but whose voice was often heard in the presence of God. And anyway, uh, that's, that's a little bit about my story. So something really interesting happened about three years after my parents were divorced and were living separate life, lives. My mother who drove a little mini came back one day to the house where we had lived as a family before they went their separate ways and said she was back and said she had made a mistake and she wanted to retrace her steps. Now they were divorced, they were no longer married, my father had a girlfriend, he didn't want her back and to be honest it was pretty ugly for a period. But they fell in love again, which is interesting, and eventually they got married again. And to turn over a new leaf, we left Scotland and we moved to the Republic of Ireland, where that's why my accent is so confused and mixed up. But it was there that my father became a Christian. He wound up with some old friends. They invited him to a series of little meetings But like what happens here and at one of those meetings he became a Christian. I I have no idea what that meant um, at 12 years of age. But what I did know was that it radically revolutionized my father. It just transformed him. It seemed to turn his life on his head. And um, slowly but surely I began to understand that there was a God... And that I had become estranged from him Cut off from him The relationship that I should have enjoyed had become broken And that needed to be restored And I needed to be forgiven And I needed to come to know Jesus And slowly I understood that And, and one day just in the middle of a field smealing at a straw bale I asked the Lord Jesus to for- come into my life I asked God to forgive me And I asked God to do in my heart what he had done in my father's heart, and that was the beginning of my Christian life. So I was about 13 at that point. It's a long time ago. I could spend um, the whole time telling you a little bit about my journey. Uh, I served an apprenticeship with my father because he was, um, had put a cabinet making business in place and I thought that my career in life was to put this business on the map, but at the end of a training period I felt God calling me into Christian work. So I went to the Faith Mission Bible College and I studied there for a couple of years. And um, I worked with them for one year as an evangelist working here in the United Kingdom. I love missionary um, talks. And um, I'm going to ask Hans if he's free on Thursday night to come and share that talk in our convention. But I love missionary talks. But did you know... That now less than 1% of the Scottish population are attending an evangelical church. So we've got 5.4 million people in this country. So that that means that there are around 50,000 evangelical Christians in Scotland. You could put all of them together in Hampden Park in Glasgow. So, we're a long way from what we used to be, the land of the book, one book, the Bible. A long way from what we used to be. And what we need is missionaries to... To take the gospel to the to the four corners of this little country that we call um, home anyway that 's a bit of a ramble. How did I start on that? Um, I ended up in the Faith Mission Bible College. I spent a year working as an evangelist, um, and then I felt really called to church work and I felt the importance of having a church family reaching out from a church family. so I went and studied in Belfast and I became a Baptist minister, and I spent three years assisting a. Guy Called John Shearer, some of you might have heard of him. I got married to a midwife called Elaine. We have five kids. I then became a senior pastor in Lisburn in Northern Ireland, and then more recently in a place called Vernon in British Columbia in Western Canada. And then in 2013, I came to be the principal of the Faith Mission Bible College. So that's a whistle stop tour of my um, life. If you have a Bible, um, I I invite you to read Acts chapter 2, and then we'll pray, and then we'll look at this chapter together. So Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and uh, Arabians, and we hear them telling in our own tongues. The mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. it on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I shall show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm going to end there. I could keep reading. um, But I think I'll end at verse 21. Just a prayer together. Lord, help us, we humbly pray, as we look at this text of Scripture and uh, it's a little controversial help us to get beyond the controversy to the core of the text the core of what uh, Luke wanted us to discover in recording these events and sharing them with us in this book called Acts. We believe with all of our hearts that there is a message here for us and for the church in the 21st century and we long to hear it we long to hear more than just the drone of a speaker's voice we, we long desperately to hear your voice And we pray that you'll come and speak to us today uh, from this amazing book. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 2 is a fairly interesting um, chapter to say the least. Pretty controversial chapter, and uh, I want to put you at ease. I haven't co- come to cause any riots or fights. Or um, I, I, what I want to do is just uh, encourage you as you think about us as a group of men in this room, thinking about the world that we live in, the communities that we are part of. The people that live beside us. How are we going to turn the world upside down in the way that this group of men in this room turned their world upside down for Jesus? So that's really what's in my mind. So Acts chapter 2 uh, interestingly contrasts with Acts chapter 1 and that's a really interesting study in itself just to look at the way these two chapters contrast with each other so in Acts 1 this, uh, we're told that the Savior ascended in Acts chapter 2 the Holy Spirit descended in Acts chapter 1 they are told to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit because he hasn't yet come and then in Acts chapter 2 we read about about him uh, coming and they no longer have to wait and they no longer have to pray for his coming. In Acts chapter 1 they are held back. In Acts chapter 2 we see them launching forth. And Very interesting uh, to notice the contrast between chapter 1, chapter 2 and the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. Chapter 2 is a remarkable occasion. Uh, it is the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, the word Pentecostos, is, uh, as, it, as it's found in the Greek text behind uh, this English translation that we read, Pentecostos means 50th. Um, and the reason that it's called the feast, feast of Pentecost is because it comes 50 days after the Feast of the Passover. Um, not only was it called the Feast of the Passover or the Feast of Pentecost 50 days after the Passover, it was also sometimes referred to as the Feast of Weeks because 50 days is 7 weeks. And so it's called the Feast of Weeks. Also called the Feast of Harvest because it marked the beginning of the grain harvest. So isn't that interesting that the Holy Spirit came at at a... at a feast that marked the beginning of the grain harvest. Was there significance in that? Was God sending out a signal that a time for, uh, a, a, time for a spiritual harvest had come as the Holy Spirit is sent out upon um, these people? What is also interesting, and I hope I'm not boring you to to death with some of these facts, but what's also interesting is that during the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, so that intertestamental period as it's sometimes called, the Feast of Pentecost was also used to commemorate the feast uh, or the giving of the law to Moses, because the Jews believed that the law was given to Moses 50 days after they left Egypt at Mount Sinai. 50 days later, God gave the law to them at Mount Sinai. So the Jews used the feast of Pentecost. And the Jews that were visiting Jerusalem, they would have been familiar with that. That would be fresh in their minds. They would know that they were coming to commemorate the, the giving of the law to, to Moses. So, so stop and think about that for one minute. Just for one minute. Uh, at the giving of the law to Moses, wasn't, wasn't there all kinds of supernatural phenomenon that took place? on on Mount Sinai wasn't there thunder and lightning and wasn't the atmosphere uh, one of sparking spiritual electricity as this new chapter in the lives of God's people opened up in the giving of the law to them, these guidelines to freedom, so as the law is given, as this new chapter opens up, there is this supernatural phenomenon that takes place on Mount Sinai, so jump forward a little bit to Acts chapter 2 another new chapter in the life. Lives of God's people, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the same kind of natural phenomenon is seen here in the streets or in the upper room on the day of, of Pentecost. So that's something which I think is worth keeping in the back of of your mind as we make our way um, through this. So what I want to do is just lift a couple of things, not a couple of things, a few things. And I'll try and work through them as quick as I can. Things which I think marked these uh, disciples, this group of men, largely men. There were some women present, but it was largely men. This group of disciples in Jerusalem, what marked them? This group of men who took the gospel to the ends of the earth. This group of men who would carry the gospel to all arts and parts, India and down into Ethiopia and up into uh, almost into Russia and across Europe. What was it that marked these men? Well, a couple of things. One, I want you to notice that they were united. That's the first thing that we are told in this passage. It says they were all in one in one place with one accord. With, in one place with one accord. Um, they'd been told by Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 4 to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. And there was absolutely... no sign of any disunity they were determined that they would wait in Jerusalem uh, uh, until they were equipped to carry out the mission that they had been entrusted with Jesus said to them in Acts chapter 1 is it 6-7 somewhere around there he said you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth so they've been given the mission they know what they are to do. But Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you are given the Holy Spirit who will equip you for the mission. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what strikes me is that they are absolutely united, that they should stay in that upper room until the Holy Spirit comes. There's no sign of any disunity, disharmony. That's interesting when you think about some of the personalities that are present in that room. You've got James and John there, the sons of thunder. Remember them? Jesus is making his way through a Samaritan village and and the Samaritan village hasn't welcomed Jesus. and, And they said to Jesus, let's just call down fire to consume them. They're in that room. Peter's in that room. Mr. Impulsive, Mr. Impetuous. The man whose legs are out over the end of the boat before his brain cogs are fully engaged. The man who speaks before he thinks. Peter is in that room. And Thomas is in there, the doubter. And, and, uh, and Simon the zealot's in that room. Who hates everything Roman? Who would do his living best to dispatch Roman soldiers at will? He's with Matthew, who was working for the Romans collecting taxes. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the personalities that are in that room, it's interesting that they were all together with one accord, absolute unity, absolute unity. So I think that unity is an important factor as we think about how we're going to reach out to others. I think as the watching skeptical world looks into the Christian church, they ought to see these people are at one with each other. Something unites them. They are united around something. They may have slight different views on various things like whether they're amillennial or premillennial. But they're absolutely united around the gospel. Absolutely united around the gospel. These people are together and they are of one accord. Now I'm not talking about the kind of unity um, where... You know, anything goes. Unity at the expense of truth. Um, The kind of unity, that kind of unity, said Spurgeon, is treason. Unity at the expense of truth. And I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying let's all throw our convictions out the window and let's all just join hands and have warm feelings and let's all be just big friends. I'm, I'm not saying that. This unity was based around the gospel, in my opinion. Um, but, but here's what I, I want to ask you, how often, how often is the divisions that we see in Christian churches, evangelical Christian churches, how often is that to do with core theological issues? Like justification by faith, like the uh, substitutionary atonement of Christ, not very often, once in a while, but not very often. More often than not, the issue that divides us is, well, see, so you're going you're, you're to have two TVs and not just one? I'm off. I'm away down the road to another church. You're going to paint the church door red and not green? Fine then, I'm off. And we go down the road to a church where they've painted it uh, green. The truth is, we're not great at unity in the Christian church. Uh, that's what I see I was reading just this week and I was listening to R.C. Sproul I don't know if you listen much to any of these guys I was listening to a sermon by R.C. Sproul very interesting sermon anyway uh, I should preach my own sermon not worry about Sproul's sermon but in it, in it he was talking about the servant of the Lord should not be contentious Servant of the Lord should not be contentious. He should be kind to all. Second Timothy 2, whatever verse it is in Second Timothy 2. Servant of the Lord should not be contentious. We're good at contention. Sometimes we can be grumpy men and we fall out with a lot of people and we make a lot of enemies. And we might want to point the finger at other people, but the truth is, sometimes there's at least four fingers pointing back at us because we're the contentious ones. And we're the ones that have sown the seeds of disunity. Doesn't it say in the book of Psalms, Psalm 133 Behold how good and pleasing it is for brothers to to dwell together in unity because it's there that the Lord commands the blessing where the brothers dwell in unity it's there that the Lord commands the blessing and what is the blessing? Psalm 133 verse 3 the blessing is life where there's disunity there's no life there's no vitality there's no wholeness there's no vigour there's death, there's discouragement, there's despondency. That's, that's what's in place when there's disunity. I've been part of teens over the years where there have been really awkward individuals. And, and how it has spoiled the spirit of the team and how it has spoiled the work of the team. So I want to ask you, I, I'm not going to labour this much longer, but I, I want to ask you this question. Are you contributing to the, keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace Are you one of these people that that encourages unity in the church? Or are you one of these people that contributes to disunity? The thing that marked this group of men who turned the world on its head was unity. I was interested to read a story a while ago about um, an Australian bus driver. I've probably told it in this story story in the church here before. But he got so sick of the pickering between the Aboriginal children and the white children, this Australian bus driver, that one day he stopped the bus and he kicked them all off. And he said to them, standing in a line along the, the roadside, he said, If you want to get on my bus, you'll need to be green because I'm tired of black and white so they got on the bus eventually they said "Okay, we're green and everybody's green and there's no black and white and he thinks he's solved it and he's driving down the road singing to himself thinking that he has solved this problem of racism on his bus and then eventually he hears one of the white children saying all you dark green children can sit over there We are as petty as that in the Christian church. Every bit as petty as that in the Christian church. Oh, you're a little bit different from me. You can sit over there. But we ought to be brothers. United around the gospel. So here's the second thing that I want you to notice. And that is that they are spirit filled. In the Old Testament in particular, the Holy Spirit comes upon certain individuals to empower them to carry out certain tasks. So this morning you were looking at... Samuel anointing David to be the future king of Israel I think you were and uh, the Holy he's anointed with oil and the Holy Spirit comes upon him to empower him for the task of leading Israel and throughout the Old Testament you've got that again and again where the Holy Spirit comes upon the judges to empower them to lead Israel to judge Israel at a time of crisis and but, but you get this picture in various places like Ezekiel chapter uh, 31 and so on, various other places in the Old Testament, that a day where our experience of the Holy Spirit is going to be different is coming. And then you come into the Gospels and throughout the Gospels you've got indications from Jesus that he's going to send uh, his Spirit and the Spirit's going to send from the Father and he'll bring to their remembrance everything that they've been taught and he will um, empower them and, and uh, he will draw alongside them as the paraclete. And then in Acts chapter 2, the floodgates open and the Holy Spirit comes in all of his fullness. Now, I want to just say this. Old Testament believers must have had some kind of experience of the Holy Spirit, right? Because you couldn't have spiritual life without the, uh, the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart. They must have had some kind of experience of the Holy Spirit. But... But in Acts chapter 2, it's a momentous occasion when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and uh, comes to indwell every believer. Uh, he comes to, to indwell. In and of course, because it's a new chapter of the church opening up, there is this remarkable phenomenon, just like there was at Mount Sinai. As a new chapter in the church opens up, there's this re- remarkable, remarkable phenomenon where um, all kinds of strange things take place. They hear the noise of wind. There's fiery tongues that rest upon their heads. There's this supernatural ability to learn languages Um, that they have never learned. Uh, It's a unique event. It's largely unrepeatable. Um, The sound of wind, which is associated... Wind is often associated with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So the Ruach of God hovers over the deep... Uh, way back at the beginning of Genesis it's the Ruach of God that gives life to the valley of dead bones in Ezekiel chapter 37 so wind and is often uh, symbolic of, of God and his presence and, and God's spirit and of course fire, fiery tongues fire is, is drawing on rich Old Testament sort of um, pictures, God is a consuming fire he is a God of blazing purity and so all of these things come together uh, in Acts chapter 2. What's interesting is that the sound of rushing wind and the tongues of fire are never repeated again in the book of Acts. The only thing that's repeated again in the book of Acts is this speaking in tongues, which is interesting. Now, I'm not going to spend long on this, but I, I'm just, I can only preach it the way I see it. And if you disagree with me, don't, don't worry about that. I'm more than happy for people. I, I teach in a Bible college and at least uh, three quarters of the class tell me they disagree with me all the time. So I, I, I'm happy with that. I don't need everyone to agree with me. But here, here's how I see this. I, I see this as a momentous occasion when the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon the church. And uh, you've got the same um, event taking place in Acts chapter 8 as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the Samaritans. Remember the Samaritans who were left behind after they were carried off into exile? The Jews would never have accepted the Samaritans. Never. But God gave them their own Pentecost in Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 10, you've got this phenomenon taking place again as the Gentiles become Christians. Gentiles are becoming Christians? You can't be serious. There's no way they are taking their place in church as our equals. Oh, yes, they are. Because God has given them his spirit, just as he has given the Jews his spirit. So the Jews get the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. But here's the thing that strikes me. We're told in Acts chapter 2 verse 4 that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And throughout the New Testament, we get this repeated command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, we are to be filled with the Spirit and not drunk with wine. We're to be filled with the Spirit and not under the influence of alcohol. We're to be under the Holy Spirit's influence, not alcohol's influence. We're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's one of the words that's used this word pleru and then it's also used in in Acts chapter 6 remember when they were to find six deacons or men that would serve the widows that needed help they were to find men uh, who were filled with the Holy Spirit how would they know if they were filled with the Holy Spirit surely the fruit of the Spirit would be dangling from the branches of their life things like kindness and patience and love and Goodness and all those things would be dangling from the branches. And people would see them and say, oh look, there's a man under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. But that's that word in Ephesians 5 verse 8, don't be controlled uh, with alcohol, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. That word is a word called plerou. The word which is used here in Acts chapter 2 verse 4 is a Greek word. And this is what the Greek word is. It's "pimplemi." And it's used in a number of times in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues languages that they've never learned. Mm -hmm. Acts chapter 4 verse 8, Peter has been preaching on the streets of Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin don't like him preaching about Jesus. They call him to the mat and say, stop preaching about Jesus. And he looks at them, the leaders of Israel, the, the ruling Jewish council. He looks at them and he says, who should I obey? God or men? Now, think about that for one minute. A couple of, a cup 50 days earlier, 50 days earlier, a little girl beside a charcoal fire said, aren't you one of that Galilean preacher's disciples? What did he say? He said, I don't know. I don't know. I swear to you I don't know. I'm sure I saw you with him. I swear to you I don't know the man. Peter. But look at him now. Acts chapter four. Standing looking at the leaders of Israel saying who should I obey God or men and you say what's happened to you? I'll tell you what's happened to him the Holy Spirit. That's what has happened to him and somehow the Holy Spirit has come to empower him and to fuel him and to enable him. To be the witness and and Acts chapter 4 verse 31. We've got the disciples praying. I think it's for the release of Peter. And we're told that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And went out onto the streets and spoke with boldness. Now... Listen, I I believe that when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. I I don't think you can be be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. Those are my views. You can toss them out the window if you like. But here's what I do. What I am prepared to say is this, that I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit every day of my life. Every single day I need the Holy Spirit's empowering, his fueling, his energizing, because I can't do it by myself. And and the reason that I fall flat on my spiritual face so often is because I get up in the morning and I trundle into the day and I think that I can do it all by myself. And I make a mess of it, a royal hash of it. And what I need is the Holy Spirit to empower me and fuel me. I was speaking to a young man recently who had been uh, to shadow John Piper for 10 days. And we spoke to him in a conversation, and and somebody said to him, I didn't ask this question. I maybe should have asked this question, but the question was asked of him, what struck you most about the ten days that you spent with John Piper? And you know what he said? He said it was when the elders of his church stood around him on Sunday morning and laid their hands on him and prayed that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit to preach the word with power he says I've never seen anything like that before Mm -hmm. most of us think we can do it by ourselves but we can't Mm -hmm. and this group of men that turned the world upside down were spirit filled They were being energized and fueled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And men, we need that. That's why we need to be on our knees. That's why we need to be communing with God. That's why we need to be looking to heaven for the resources that we need to reach this world that we are part of. So they were united. They were spirit-filled. Thirdly, I think they were relevant. They were relevant. Now, The Passover uh, was commemorated usually in April, it depends what way the moon falls, but usually it's commemorated sort of March, April, April time. Um, if, If you think about that, 50 days later brings you into early June, doesn't it? The Feast of Pentecost was in early June. That was the best time of year to travel. So, April little dodgy still, winter winds on the Mediterranean Sea. But June, I mean, uh, travel had opened up on the Mediterranean Sea and people were coming from... So the Feast of Pentecost was was the best attended feast in the Jewish calendar. I mean, they came from everywhere to to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And uh, there is something like 16 nations mentioned here in, in, in this passage. And what strikes me is this, what strikes me is that the Holy Spirit came upon them and enabled them to speak languages that they had never learned so that these visitors to Jerusalem could hear people speaking in their own native language. So these these guys that came to Jerusalem and they spoke Greek and they spoke a bunch of other languages, African languages... Uh, some of the other languages around the Mediterranean basin and they hear these disciples speaking to them in their own language now I know that people have, have gone off on that and, and there's all kinds of discussions about that I think it's a tragedy that the thing which is being missed is the fact that God wanted these people to hear yes. his wonders being spoken in their own language that's what strikes me because God wants the people that live out here to hear the gospel in a relevant, meaningful, engaging way. And, and sometimes when people come into our churches they hear all of these terms like well I'm reformed and I'm I'm, I, I'm covenantal and I'm amillennial, I'm Dispensary," and they haven't a clue what any of it means, none of it and I just want to ask the, this question of you as a group of men when was the last time you tried to just simply yeah. engage somebody with the amazing story of Jesus Just in a simple, down-to-earth, but theologically accurate way, but but still in a relevant, engaging way, just to share the gospel with somebody. Mm -hmm. Because that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. I used to think think that the wonders of God meant that what they heard was the disciples waxing eloquently uh, and praising God. But I have changed my mind about that. Wouldn't, isn't, isn't one of the greatest works of God ever the sending of his son to a cross on Calvary? So, so wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't they have been speaking about that great event as they extolled the wonders of God in, in languages that they had never learned so that these people could hear? So I'm just saying God wanted these people to hear. I think the church, I think maybe the relevance card is overplayed a little bit. But I think it's something that we need to think seriously about. Are we really engaging people? in the way that they did in the first century you go to the book of Acts you follow it through Acts 17 Paul's walking through Athens he's speaking to philosophers he finds um, an altar to an unknown god and and he knows that they've been worshipping all these strange gods and he says here's an altar to an unknown god let me tell you about this god that you don't know anything about he just picks them up where they are and takes them where he wants them to go he picks them up where they are and takes them to God, the one in whom they live and move and have their being, the one who will judge them at the end of time, and the one who sent his Son into this world. Mm -hmm. So, when was the last time that you just spoke in an ordinary way to people about Jesus? Mm -hmm. You know, the gospel still works, I don't know if you knew that. Mm A girl from the Czech Republic came to Canada to work in the apple orchards there in the Okanagan Valley where I was pastor of a church she came from the Czech Republic she grew up in an atheistic family she went to a secular school she'd never heard about the gospel she had never read the Bible she knew nothing about it but she met two girls on that apple orchard who were Bible college students and who took it upon themselves to love that girl and do life with that girl and pray for that girl and show that girl love and kindness all summer. And they did that and they brought her to church at the end of the summer. And I'll never forget the Sunday morning they brought her to church. And and, and uh, where, uh, somehow, for some reason, crazy reason, I was using the illustration of C.S. Lewis where he said... To the atheistic student that he was writing backwards and forwards to and he said the Holy Spirit is after you mm-hmm. you'll never get away C.S. <laughs> Lewis wrote and said that and I used that illustration and she sat there and riveted to her seat God spoke to her the Holy Spirit is after me I am never going to get away, get away never. and that morning she became a Christian the gospel works If we would only believe in it and take it to people in a relevant, engaging way. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. Well, here's the fourth thing. Um, They were bold. Sixteen different nations, right? Sixteen different nations, sixteen different languages potentially, and only twelve disciples. So twelve into sixteen, at least four people at one point had no idea what anyone was saying. So it's no wonder that they said, oh, these guys are drunk. But what I want you to notice here in this whole thing is, there's no backing down. The disciples aren't saying, oh, we're sorry, we're making a fool of ourselves. Let's just go, guys, and and run back to the upper. There's no backing down. Peter stands there and faces the crowd and says, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. This is only, what is it, nine o'clock in the morning. How in the world could they be drunk? This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, he says. there's a boldness here why are we so pathetic and so apologetic about the gospel in the 21st century why do we walk around with our head on our shoulders apologizing for the fact that we love Jesus and we are committed to him why don't we talk as naturally about Jesus as people talk about their antique car or or their new computer or whatever it is they talk about why is there no boldness in the Christian church in the 21st century Martin Luther, uh, interesting 500 years, 500th year anniversary this year. And uh, they had collected a bunch of money through the sale of um, indulgences and they were going to build a new church with the money in Rome St. Peter's of Rome Luther was furious corruption exploitation of the poor what in the world is happening here he writes this document he nails it to the to the, the door of Wittenberg Castle and it goes throughout Europe and the next thing he's on the mat before the leaders of the church and they say we want you to renounce and recant everything that you've written takes a night to think about it, he comes back the next day and he says my conscience is bound by the word of God here I stand I can do no other so help me God where's that kind of courage in the 21st century they came to Athanasius and they said to Athanasius the whole world is against you, you know what he said to them, then I am against the whole world that's I see that kind of boldness, and sometimes I don't see it in the, in the church. I, I took my daughter recently to Harriet Watt University. She wanted to study maths there. And uh, anyway, we were walking through the grounds of Harriet Watt, and there's a stone. And on the stone are the words of a man called Alex Salmond, if you've ever heard of him. And you know what it says? These are words that he is supposed to have uttered in Westminster. He said, The sun will melt the stones in Scotland before I allow third level students to pay for their education. Where do you see that kind of boldness in the Christian church? Peter and the the others, there's a boldness here. These men are not drunkards. They're not scurrying to hide. They're standing and facing the music. Here is the fourth, fifth thing. I can't remember what we're on, but I'm trying to pick up the pace here now. They were team orientated. Sometimes when we think about the day of Pentecost, we think about Peter going down onto the streets of Jerusalem and preaching all by himself, don't we? That's what we usually. That's the picture that I had in my mind for a long time. Peter's down there. He's preaching. Three thousand people are converted. Fantastic day of gospel opportunity. But that's not true. Peter was there, flanked by the other eleven. They're all there, standing shoulder to shoulder with him, side by side. They're standing with him. This is not a one-man operation this is a team effort these guys are in it together as, as the skeptical world looks on they can see that this is a team yes. team Jesus call it what you like this is a team for Jesus sometimes I just wonder if if people see that in, in the Christian church do they see that we are as much of a team as we should be I was interested to speak at a conference a while ago and good, a good while ago and I met a guy called co- a WEC missionary called Patrick McGilligot some of you might have heard of him anyway he was telling me he was speaking at a church in London uh, a black um, I guess Christian church uh, and he was the only white person in the the church and he was just telling the story it was his story he was invited to preach and he got up and preached but the, the pastor didn't leave the pulpit the pastor stood beside him so he began to read the text And he started to read the text And he comes you know, across the word grace And the pastor stops him and says Anyone here receive grace? Someone puts up there Come up and tell us about it So now there's three of them on the pulpit And the three of them stay on the pulpit And then he continues to tell Patrick to continue to read And then he comes across the word mercy And forgiveness And one by one And soon there's a whole row of them on the pulpit And then he's told to keep preaching it was a team effort I don't know whether, whether that's what was going on in Jerusalem but it looks like that to me this was a team effort this was not a one man show listen evangelism reaching, reaching the folks that we live the people that you work beside on the building site in an office the students that you sit beside in the classroom wh- wherever you are in life the neighbors that live next door to you either side of you or down the street the job of reaching them is not just your minister's job or your pastor. It's all of our jobs. This is a team. This is a team enterprise. We've all got to get involved in this. Here's the fourth and fifth. Or I'm, I'm teasing you now. I think, what am I, six? Six. Here's two quick things to finish with. So... One, they were Bible-centered. If you look down through Peter's sermon that he preached, you will see that it is full of the Old Testament. He talks about the prophet Joel. He goes to Psalm 16. Uh, He goes to Psalm 68. He goes to Psalm 8. It's just full of the Bible. They believed in the Bible. They believed that they needed to quote the Bible. They believed in the power of the Bible. You know, he didn't stand up and tell people at the next election this is where you should put your X on the ballot paper. He just preached the Bible because he believed that the Bible could revolutionize lives, and that's true. The Bible can change lives. My words might be important, but God's word is infinitely more important. It's God's Word that is the hammer that can break the rock in pieces. It's God's Word that's the light on our path and a lamp to our feet. It's God's Word that's a sword that can pierce into people's hearts. It's the Bible that revolutionizes life. God's Word. And rather than defending God's Word, we ought to unleash it and let it go. You know... um, This is a true story told by John Flavel, the Puritan preacher, of a young boy who was leaving Plymouth at, uh, I don't know what age he was, when he was leaving, it was something like... uh, He he was something like nine years of age when he left Plymouth on a ship. listened to a preacher preaching. and, And 90 years later, at 99 years of age, the words of that sermon came flooding back into his mind, sitting in New England, and he was converted. There's no telling the power of God's word. That's the truth. I've seen God's word at work in ways that would just amaze you. Uh, a lady in our church this i 'll ch- quickly tell you this story i 've told it here probably before a lady in our church was doing the Canadian census, and uh, she came across this lady who was ill, going through chemotherapy, dressed in a bathrobe, came to the door garden was like a wilderness so the lady from our church knocks door and this lady comes she says I'm here to fill in your senses and they did all that stuff and she says I can see that you're not well and how in the world would you be able to cope with your garden I go to the church at the top of the hill we have a team of men that just do stuff in the community some of them would like to come and cut your grass and cut your hedge So she came up and told us about this lady and our associate pastor was a missionary in Tanzania with AIM and he was just back and he wanted to, he hated the office so he wanted to get out. So he says I'll cut her grass and I'll cut her hedge and every week he went down, cut her grass, cut her hedge. At the end of the summer she never spoke to him, all she did was look at him out through the window, she never spoke to him. At the end of the summer she came out with a glass of water and she gave it to him and she said to him... Why do you want to help me? And he says to her, Because God helped me. And I want to help other people. And he said to her, If you allowed me, I would love to take you through one of the Gospels in the Bible to show you how God has helped me. And he nearly fell off her veranda when she agreed. So every week he met with her for four weeks and he just read mark's gospel with her nothing fancy no christianity explored nothing like that just read the gospel of mark with her and tried to explain it as he went and at the end of the fourth week she became a christian yeah. the power of god's word is incredible yeah. not only are they bible bible centered but you'll notice that they are christ focused they talk about, uh, they highlight the life and ministry of Jesus and and they basically ask the question, who else could still storms? Who else could heal the sick? Who else could raise the dead? God has unmistakably attested that this is his son and you saw it with your own eyes we saw it with our own eyes then they talk about his death, they talk about his resurrection um, and they just go through the story of Jesus and throughout the book of Acts again and again you just find this where Acts chapter two thirty two we are God has raised him to life, we are witnesses of this. Acts three fifteen, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, we are witnesses to this. Acts ten thirty nine, we are witnesses of everything he did. That's all they did in the book of Acts. They just basically told the story of Jesus. They were his witnesses. What does the witness do when they're in court? They just tell what they know. Isn't that that's all they do? just tell us what you saw and, and we don't need you to make up anything just tell us what you know and what you saw and that's all the world needs us to do just to tell them what we know about Jesus how Jesus has revolutionized a little boy from a housing estate on the east coast of Scotland whose parents were a mess whose home life was a mess but who somehow had two Christian grandparents and somehow God miraculously answered their prayer and revolutionized his young life through Christ. He secured forgiveness and he came into a right relationship with the Father somehow just to tell them what we know. Mm-hmm. And that works. That works. I'm, I'm finished. You know, there's a little guy who works for I, I was, uh, for the Christ, something like the Christian Seamen's Missionary Society. There's a little man called Walter Burrell that used to work for them, and I knew him many years ago. Anyway, I was speaking at a conference outside Toronto, and this guy came up to me, and he was from Dublin, and so we got connected and we got talking. He said to me, Let me tell you my story. Uh, He had emigrated to Canada, but he said, I'm from Dublin, and here's my story. He said, I was walking, I was a Mormon missionary in England. And I was making my way back to to Dublin and I had to take the ferry into Belfast and then I was going to catch the bus down to Dublin, he says. So I was walking through Belfast with my suit and suitcases and he said, a man drove up beside me in a red Sierra car and a big bushy beard and he rolled down the window and he looked at me straight in the face and he said, what are you doing, son? No church will ever get you into heaven. Praise the Lord. Jesus is the only way to heaven. And he caught up the window and drove off. <laughs> and he said, I was so tormented by what that man said. For the next two weeks I could hardly sleep. Two weeks later, one Sunday morning, I went into a little brethren assembly on the south side of Dublin. And I asked one of the leaders, who is this Jesus? And how do I get to know him for myself? And I became a Christian. What a story. Just the story of Jesus. That's all that did it. The story of Jesus still revolutionizes lives. And I hope that you'll be inspired and encouraged as you think about that. And taking that uh, wherever you work, wherever you live. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Just let it loose. Just share it and watch God at work. You'll be surprised at how God works through the message of the gospel. Romans tells us it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Thank you so much for your kind attention.